0: That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
1: An administration is bent on being America last and, uh, and allowing these people to come in. And not only allowing them to come in, but turning our border agents into basically travel agents and uh, sending them all across the country on taxpayers' dime, putting them up in uh, housing feeding them, giving them cell phones, giving them clothes. Enough is enough. A situation on the southern border, as discussed by Mike Collins, Congressman Mike Collins, spoke with him, I don't know, a week or ten days ago. The Butts County Republican represents Athens in the U.S. House in Georgia 10. It is an election year. I think I saw a day or two ago, he's he's, he's saying, obviously, we expect this, that he is going to run for a second term in Congress. He'll have opposition uh, one way or another. Democrat, we, we spoke with a Democratic primary opponent uh, some weeks ago, uh, a young lady by the name of Lexi Darty here in Athens. Uh, lo and behold, another candidate jumping into the race. I uh, learned of this on Wednesday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Jessica Four, and that name rings a bell, yes, she has run before, uh, ran in 2010, when it was, or 2020, when it was an open seat, and now that it is held by a Republican, she'd like to run again, like to get the nomination, uh, and she's in studio with us now. Jessica Four, thanks for your time this morning.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me, it's always uh, a pleasure.
1: Get to all of the reasons you want to run for Congress, you are running for Congress, what you'd do if you got yourself elected to Congress, but back up first, let's do the biogra- uh, biographical stuff first. What's the resume?
2: Uh, well, I was born in Macon, and I've been a resident of Georgia for most of my life, except for a couple of years out west. And, um,
1: Where uh, out west?
2: I was in Kansas City for a couple of years oh, after One of college. my favorite
1: places. There oh, was I'm so glad Yeah. To hear it. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, what'd you do out there?
2: Uh, I was involved with uh, nonprofit ministry work uh, doing okay. doing worship music and things like that. And
1: found your way back to Georgia doing what?
2: Uh, well, when I came back to Georgia, i I went on staff at the University of Georgia Wesley Foundation here in Athens. Okay. Uh, doing campus ministry and mentoring girls and and uh, leading worship for uh, for their worship services. you
1: doing that still?
2: Uh, I, I'm still a worship leader. I'm still on staff at a Methodist church, and I do uh, itinerant gigs sometimes traveling around with ministry. And I saw your
1: campaign video, your announcement video. You put that out a day or two ago. There appears to be some farming in your background. (laughs)
2: There, there's a lot of stuff in my background. I went through a significant period of um, economic hardship uh, mm. in my in my 20s and 30s. Um, a lot of that was recovering from an abusive marriage, and so I did a whole bunch of different kinds of just basically any kind of work that I could get. And some of it was uh, some of it was organic farming work. Uh, some of it was I, I worked at airport security at Athens Ben-Ups for a little while. Wow. And I did telemarketing for nine bucks an hour. And, wow. Yeah. So have have lived that that path of you know sitting down at the kitchen table and figuring out how to make 10 bucks last to the end of the week if you can.
1: And now again, for a second time in, in a couple of election cycles, a candidate for Congress. Uh, as we mentioned, the primary, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss uh, that. But you're taking aim, and guns blazing metaphorically in that video against the guy who has the job now. Why?
2: Well, first of all, uh, you know, I found it really hypocritical of him to run so strongly on being against uh, redistribution of wealth, being against uh, taxpayer funded assistance for uh, people in the district. And yet when he had the opportunity to take 900 and I think 20 something thousand dollars of PPP loans, uh, he welcomed that opportunity. They were forgiven. And then he had close to a million dollars to loan quite a bit to his campaign. Um, I met him on the campaign trail. Uh, I, I have had the chance to interact. With him a bit, and what I see is a situation where you know he is uh, advancing himself to Congress, he is personally profiting uh, in his role doing that. Um, How so? Well, the way that I just said, so
1: well, let me say uh, the PPP thing is I understand it, and people I think are are guilty of sometimes misunderstanding it intentionally or otherwise. But it was you mentioned that you call it a loan, It, it was a loan if. As someone who's receiving uh, the PPP money, it was a loan if you're a business owner who took the money for the purpose of keeping people on your payroll, then you laid people off or you let people go. Then, yes, it becomes a loan. You're supposed to pay it back. If you did as the congressman did and, and you kept your workers on the payroll, then it became a grant. Yes. So that's what happened in his case. You're not alleging that he did anything illegal. Here.
2: No, not at all. Not at all. I'm just saying and I agree. It became a, a grant and it was forgiven. Nevertheless, his principles did not lead him to say, hey, I need to I need to try to make my business work. Uh, when money was offered, he took it. And I'm I'm sure that he's Willing to do that in other deals as well And I suppose what you're
1: saying is a a bit of a shell game Then, okay, here's money you didn't have to spend To keep those workers on your payroll, so it's money You can spend on your congressional campaign
2: Yeah, exactly, very much
1: Okay, so point taken Uh, Okay, but he is a congressman, he pursues certain policies And I gather you disagree with a great many Of them, Uh, go through some of the greatest hits Here, where do you, in terms of policy How do you separate yourself from a Mike Collins And and the Republicans who have that very Slim majority in the House
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it seems to me that the Republican approach to policy is not to have any policies other than to say we don't want to do anything about problems, but we want to complain about them for political points. Let me interrupt
1: you really quickly. Mm -hmm. Jessica Ford, their candidate, Democrat candidate for Congress, let me tell you who agrees with you. We were talking about this last hour. Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp is out there saying, listen, Republicans, my fellow Republicans, it's not enough to be against Joe Biden and against those those wicked Democrats. Tell us what you're for. And you're saying you're saying the same thing.
2: Yeah, very much so. And I did not hear that interview, but I'm encouraged to hear that uh, Governor Kemp said that, Um, you know, there's very much, I think, a problem in D.C. right now and in our political discourse overall, um, where very often problems are more valuable than the solution. And so so politicians and lawmakers have this Um, way that they can approach policy, which is either let's prolong the problem so that we can complain about it and score political points and stoke outrage. Would
1: rather have the issue than have the issue resolved.
2: Exactly. And we've just seen that with, uh, you know, there was a bipartisan deal in Congress dealing with uh, border security uh, that ended up getting tanked with a lot of pressure from Trump to say, I want to campaign on this problem. Hold on a
1: minute. Can't I believe, can't Mike Collins believe, irrespective of anything Donald Trump says or does, can't they look at this on its own merits and say, this is bad. This is a bad piece of legislation. I'm not going to support it, irrespective of anything Donald Trump says.
2: I mean, possibly they could, but I don't think they did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jessica Ford, uh, Democrat candidate for Congress. All right, I mean, that's an issue. By some polling, it's the most important issue, uh, certainly in various places in the country, an increasingly large number of places in the country. So what's the answer if there is one?
2: For the border crisis? Yes. I think it's going to take a, a very multi-pronged approach. I think we definitely need to fund enough personnel uh, to be processing people who are coming to the border, but I think we need to be looking at the conditions in the countries that they're traveling from uh, and, and, you know... See if we can catch them earlier in the process. Uh, I know that there's been some proposals and maybe some limited um, you know, allowances of allowing people to apply uh, for amnesty in this country under legal immigration rules. without yeah,
1: That word is toxic. You start throwing that word around and, and that, that's just that's toxic.
2: Well, I'm not sure that it is. If, if, if we're a nation of immigrants and we have immigration policy that says people can come here under certain circumstances, um, then I don't think that it's toxic to say let's figure out how legitimate. Well, I mean,
1: the word amnesty itself means to be forgiven for something, to be granted amnesty for some some grievance, mm. uh, something that you have done wrong. And in the case of crossing our border, uh, something you've done illegally.
2: Well, I'm using I'm using the wrong vocabulary. Then, but point point being, if we've got people that are fleeing violence in their home country and they're looking mm. for safety in the United States, they are allowed to petition for uh, that safety by pre- by presenting themselves at a, at a port of entry. Um, and then what's happening is. You know, we don't have the resources to to process people because we need to screen people. We need to look at uh, who's coming into the country. You know, if people have significant criminal histories, um, if people uh, are, are not able to come and, and find jobs and contribute to the economy, which is very much what usually happens with people who uh, who come here from other places. They want to work. They want to contribute. They want to play. They want to pay taxes. Um, but we need to be able to have enough personnel to process those applications. And if we could start it prior to them actually physically um, getting to the point where they're crossing a desert and presenting themselves at the border of Mexico when they're coming from Central and South America, um, I think we need to look at ways to uh, start that process earlier on before it becomes a a big bottleneck at the border. I grew up in
1: South Carolina, just a couple hours away outside of Columbia. Um, Ended up graduating from University of South Carolina with a degree in geology. Came to Athens um, for graduate school kind of a traditional story, mm. expected to live here for about two years, and then move out to Nevada, and I thought I was going to go be a gold miner. I spoke with her about a month ago, another Democrat candidate for Congress, Georgia 10. Now, Lexi Darty, her name now in Athens, as you heard there, uh, mentioned that to mention this, Jessica Ford, also a Democrat in Athens, also running for Congress, kicked off her campaign earlier this weekend in studio with us this morning, second time for you, you ran unsuccessfully a couple of years ago. You happen to know Lexi Darty or anything about her? you bumped into her anyplace? i
2: I've met her in passing a few times. Uh, she's very personable, very nice. Uh, and
1: any concern? I, I saw this some Twitter talk just the other day. What, what is this? Why we got two Democrats running in a seat that's probably going to be really hard for one Democrat to win? What's the point in this?
2: Sure. Um... You know, I'm not running because I want to be a politician and win a, a seat and get elected to office. I'm running because I'm invested in this district and have been uh, outside of political context for many decades. Um, and when I ran in 2022, and again this time, um, you know, I I'm a former Republican. I was a young conservative uh, when I was a well. There's a line
1: on the bio I didn't know about. Okay, well there you go. <laughs> yeah, tell yeah. us about
2: that. So you know, I grew up in Macon, and I was you know on the student council in my youth group and started a campus ministry at my Baptist high school. And, you know, I came up to to UGA and was very much in the sort of, you know, white evangelical space of of leading worship and uh, watching Fox News and and all that. And I- uh, What went wrong? (laughs) (laughs) You know what went right is I became an adult with an internet connection and I started to uh, look up policy data. Um, And I also, I started that journey when I um, was very concerned with uh, fetal deaths from depleted uranium weapons that were used in Fallujah, Iraq by the George W. Bush administration that I initially voted for in my very first election. Um, And so as someone who is deeply pro-life in principle, um, you know. looking at that, it, it began to open my eyes to this, exactly what I'm talking about, where the problem is more valuable than the solution on issues of life um, and where there's no outcry when there are other fetal and baby lives that are being taken uh, through policy that supported very often by the Republican Party in the United well, States. Well, I mean,
1: the issue that I have with, with, with that kind of approach, it, 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 it's, it's this argument that since we can't do everything, we can't do anything, <laughs> we can pass laws wise laws, I would think moral laws, that would say that we protect the life of the child in the womb, yeah. that that is innocent life worthy of our protection. That is the moral thing to do, and our laws should reflect it. I can hold that view, and at the same time, accept that we cannot do everything about every situation, but but that we can't do everything doesn't mean we shouldn't do something.
2: Well, I agree with your principle that just because we can't do everything mean, doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something, but I, I disagree that, uh, you know, not being able to Do everything is a good description of American military incursions that directly uh, cause mass birth defects that continue to this day for decades. Um, And so, no, we can't fix all the problems in the world. But the the thing that the thing that that started me on was a journey of looking at, um, you know, if we approach the abortion issue with this set of policy changes, or if we support it with that, you know, if we approach it with this this other set of policy changes, what's actually the most effective way to prevent that situation from happening for the sake of protecting lives? Um, And not just fetal life, but also maternal life. Um, And and what I began to realize looking at that is that the most effective ways to prevent abortion uh, are to have very strong public health care policies, uh, very strong sex education, uh, access to birth control. For example, in Colorado, when they deployed uh, universal free IUDs for anybody who wanted to go get them, uh, they had an immediate tanking of the abortion rate of the teen pregnancy rate. Um, They still get a lot of people from red states coming in there that's mitigating their numbers. um, And that's one of the effects of overturning Roe and having this take place on a state-by-state basis. Um, but, you know, if you start looking into things like um, the Republican approach or the pro-life approach that says uh, life begins at conception, mm. they're not simply saying that genetic human life begins at conception, which is not, uh, that, that, that's not up for argument. That's true. Whether mm. it's in a petri dish or whether it's in a woman, um, but but they're kind of getting at a metaphysical idea of ensoulment, that, that conscious human life that has human rights, the same as a three-year-old child that's already been born, that the the point where that happens is when sperm hits egg. And the consequence of adopting that uh, policy approach is that, you know, to be consistent, you would have to make illegal uh, some of the most effective forms of birth control. Uh, and the result of that is more unplanned pregnancies and then crossing state lines for oftentimes later-term abortions. Um, and, and that particular ideation, uh, that's a particular theological view. Mm-hmm. Um, and, theologi- and my
1: question is always the same, Jessica Ford, Democratic candidate for Congress. If not at the moment of conception, when? And, and what happens, what is it prior to that moment?
2: Well, I'll answer that, but let me, let me finish my statement because the, sure. the idea that it begins at conception is a theological idea. If, if we're talking about ensoulment and human rights, uh, in contrast to say later stages that would be potential markers like the potential for consciousness, consciousness or EEG brainwaves, which appear in the neighborhood of, of week twenty-two, um, and so Christians and Jewish theologians and and you know lots of people with religious ideas about the subject differ on the um, the point at which somebody is. Inherently, a person with rights, um, but nevertheless, theological or metaphysical ideas are not a basis for any legal actions under the Constitution. Well, so I, we've got—I
1: I would argue that uh, we, we value life. Therefore, we have laws against murder. Hmm? We value property. Therefore, we have laws against theft. Those all have moral theological underpinnings as laws.
2: Well, they do. And we could go back to Hammurabi and we could go back to John Locke and all kinds of things. We could go back to the Constitution and the way that the framers um, appealed to certain natural laws proceeding from God. Nevertheless, it's stuff that is... Theologically, in question among different religious groups. And so then it becomes a question of whose religious beliefs are binding on other people's medical decisions. And then it also becomes a question of what kinds of liabilities are introduced. Because if you want to, you know, pick any point in pregnancy where you want to say life begins here and we're going to legislate the protection of that life. Um, at that point, you're creating a situation where healthcare providers in the real world who are dealing with um, very oftentimes, you know, not just elective abortions, but they're dealing with oftentimes Christians who are married and they're expecting a very much wanted baby. And then they have the worst thing that can possibly happen to them medically go down. Mm -hmm. And they know that it's a foregone conclusion. The baby is not going to survive. Um, and mama's vital signs are okay for now, but they're going to tank at some later time. Might be days, might be weeks. And you've got healthcare providers, uh, in, in red States like Georgia that, you know realistically think they've got to think about liability they've got to think about keeping their practice open and whether they're going to get criminalized or sued for doing the thing that they need to do for patient care
1: you alluded to it earlier jessica as long as we're on the subject here uh, the the dobbs decision where were you in terms of that decision as a constitutional matter you correctly pointed out that all it really did was return the question to the states as as i would say an original intent constitutionalist i thought i applauded that where are you on that
2: I think that, first of all, returning it to the states, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that that's the constitutional decision. Um, uh, you know, I think that they're gonna come up with some issues with substantive due process and bodily autonomy. And that's really the way that I approach this issue. If, if we wanted to talk about it physic you know, if we wanted to talk about it in terms of who's a person with human rights. Um, and we say that at some point in the pregnancy, the fetus becomes a person with human rights. The mother, of course, is also a person with human rights when does one person with human rights gain as one of those rights uh, access to another person's body and bodily functions for their physical survival? For example, if I have a child with somebody and then my child needs a kidney to survive and the father is a match, but doesn't wanna donate a kidney, I don't have a a legal mechanism to go and sue for that kidney to save that child's life. and so it's, it's, it creates an additional question of maybe the like well, the
1: question then becomes who's as a legal matter mm-hmm. who's who's going to have essentially jurisdiction? That, yeah. that was Dobbs. It was a question of jurisdiction.
2: Yeah, and so and so to me the problem with that is, and this this may not be the constitutional problem as much as the ethical problem, is that when it's remanded to the states. And some of the states are going to have very draconian bans. Six week, you know, Mm -hmm. as soon as you have cardiac pole activity, you can't do anything about it. And then you've got other states that are very permissive and allow anything, uh, you know, right up to the point of birth. Um, Then what happens is when women are in crisis pregnancies in red states, and we saw this with Texas a lot, um, they tend to have to delay. They tend to have to go to other states to obtain the procedure, but at a later stage that many more of us would agree would be fascinating. I would
1: love to continue this. Conversation, yeah. the pressures of time. Quickly, are you online someplace in terms of is that still a work in progress in terms uh, of the congressional campaign?
2: I am, so people can find me. It's a hashtag and a website. Uh Jessica4F O R E G A.
0: <laughs> Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Super Light collection. The lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever.